This is Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. Composer, musician, and poet Bob Lewis is here in southwest Florida. He's co-founder and original band member of the new wave band Devo. Lewis is widely credited with formulating the de-evolution theory, worldview, or philosophy that's defined the band's work. And he'll be featured at an art speak at FSW lecture, reading, and Q&A event this evening at Florida Southwestern State College in Fort Myers. The event comes in conjunction with an exhibition now at the Bob Rauschenberg Gallery at Florida Southwestern State College titled Devo 5 The beginning was the end, a 50th anniversary tribute to the de-evolution band. And the exhibition celebrates the 50th anniversary of the iconic band. And that exhibit is going to run through December 9th. Bob Lewis's speaking event tonight is from 7 to 8.30, and we'll include him reading his latest poem, Reflections in Mark Mothersbaugh's Eye, about his friend, former bandmate, and the Devo frontman. And the Devo exhibition, now at the Rauschenberg Gallery, is curated by gallery director Jade Dellinger, who himself has been a lifelong fan of the band. Dellinger co-authored The Beginning Was the End, Devo in Ohio, which serves as a definitive account of the band's early history. And ahead of tonight's event, which is free and open to the public, by the way, I'm so pleased to be joined in studio by Jay Dellinger and Bob Lewis himself. Bob, welcome to Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much, John, and uh, it's nice to be here with Jade. And Jade, also welcome back to the show. Always great to have you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On X, formerly known as Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. So, Bob, since it's likely some of our radio listeners may only have had a a passive experience with Devo, perhaps enjoying those crazy music videos during MTV's glory days, I'd like to start by asking you to just talk about this de-evolution concept and how that all came about. Well, um, I think that uh, it came about as a result of uh, the um, May 4th incident at Kent State when Four students were killed and 11 students were wounded. Uh, and uh, Jerry Casali and I had both witnessed the event. And I think it was uh, uh, a situation where, where cognitive dissonance over uh, what we had been told about what the rules were and what actually wound up being the rules that they were enforcing. Mm. And uh, I'd say... The concept that that humans were devolving started out as a joke, uh, but uh, 50 years of evidence, I think, shows that we were sadly, perhaps, uh, right about it all along. And as I understand, you were the first Kent State student to graduate with a degree in anthropology. Certainly, those studies must have played into the formulation of the theory. Yeah, absolutely. When when I started uh, at Kent, it was the sociology and anthropology department, and you could only get a minor in anthropology. But by the time I was ready to graduate, they had made it a major, so I was really the first person that had had enough hours of actual anthropology classes uh, in order to have an anthropology major. When I was a young and myself, anthropology was certainly on the short list of things I was considering going in. So it's still something I, I just really have a... I don't know, I, I guess just an, an intellectual interest in, but I'm curious about what made you want to go down that road, that path. I, I think from from the time I was a little kid, I always 
wanted to be an, an archaeologist or a paleontologist. I remember reading books about dinosaurs, you know, d when they first discovered uh, dinosaurs in the uh, uh, late 19th century. And, you know, I was fascinated. Well, for some reason, all kids are fascinated by dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. And I was. And then, you know, as I got older, I became more interested in, in humans, perhaps. And I think had it not been for the May 4th incident, I would have probably wind up in the Old Divide Gorge trying to dig up bones. Uh, and I think Jerry Casale probably would have wound up being either an art professor or um, a, a creative director at an advertising agency because I think that was kind of his trajectory and we got kind of knocked off that trajectory by by the occurrence. And you had said you and Jerry both, both witnessed the, the Kent State massacre. Um, did you know each other at that point? Yes. Um, yeah. We knew each other, um, but not really that well. But then after, after May 4th, I moved out of the apartment that I was in into an apartment down the hall from him. And so from that point on, we spent a lot more time together and kind of that's when we started cooking up the idea. Okay. And, and initially, was the de-evolution philosophy always intended to foment into a band or did it start as something a bit more amorphous, something that, you know, would have involved a lot of different artistic mediums? Perhaps? Well, yeah, I think it was, it was kind of a multimedia thing. We always wanted to make films. We always did TV shows. I mean, if... If we could have made TV shows or uh, commercials, in fact, we actually, we actually uh, came up with cheek-to-cheek uh, -cheek deodorant spray. <laughs> and and now, now, by the way, there are ads on TV for deodorant for your bottom. Okay. In fact, you can, you can put it anywhere on your body and there will be no odor. I saw this ad about a month ago and mm. I just – I couldn't believe it. So I thought we had enough with scented toilet paper. <laughs> no, we're not going to stop there. Okay. <laughs> well, and have you noticed the toilet paper ads now? We're the bear literally <laughs> in the woods. Uh, right. Oh, gosh. Oh, I didn't think we were going to get off track that quickly. Um, but we that's were, what we're here for. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, but we, were, we were talking a little bit before the, the mics were turned on, and I was sort of talking about my perspective of the Kent State shooting growing up, what we were taught in history, and how it was this event that just changed a lot for so many people. And it was something like a reference point people had. And I was comparing that to now where – and again, the shooters and, and these you know mass shooting events that just seem to happen so often on school campuses. It, it's not the National Guard. It's not the government. But do you think in some way that still fits into the de-evolution theory? Absolutely. I mean the way I understand it, we have more than one mass shooting incident a day. Yeah. We're at like 585 now and we're, we still have a month and a half, yeah. uh, you know, to go for the record. And while well, number one, there's not another developed nation on earth that has that same problem. Yeah. And uh, the fact that it seems to be impossible to deal with it politically uh, is just another kind of sad commentary. Yeah, yeah. It, it was incredibly sobering. Two weeks ago, uh, Bob and I were together, but with my co-author, David Giffels, and we were asked to speak at the Kent State University May 4th Center, Memorial Center, yeah. and seeing that, I mean, and, and having in the audience people that 
had been there was 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 really uh, an intense experience, I think, for, for me and also being at the site and putting our finger in the in the hole in the Don Drum sculpture that, you know, took a bullet and, you know, but. Well, and Kent, Kent was a kind of a se- special place at the time. It's largely uh, uh, because of the post-war baby boom, the university went from 8,000 to over 20,000 in like a four-year period. Mm. And so it was expanding rapidly, and it geographically, it was right on the east-west trade route. If you're going from New York to Chicago, it's almost exactly halfway. So, and so anybody going from New York to Chicago or the West Coast would, would drive through Kent, and it kind of made it fertile ground for, for cross-pollinization of, of art. I mean, you could drive to New York City and see, see art shows in, you know, in eight hours. So, you know, that was not out of this world, really. And there was an extraordinary collection of professors who were there that were visiting. I mean, Devo's first gig was at the 1973 Creative Arts Festival at Kent State yes. as the Sextet Devo. And, the, and they were invited by their professors who to be on the bill with, you know, Robert uh, Creeley, the, uh, the poet, and with Stan Breckage showing experimental films. And you guys went on and shared the stage with them, and you just had two rehearsals with Mark Mothersbaugh before you did it. Yes, yes. Well, we, you know, we didn't. What could go wrong? And, and uh, well, and uh, we were very lucky. We had these fantastic mentors, uh, Robert Bertoff, who was a professor in the English department, and he brought in uh, every major living American poet. So Ed Dorn and Robert Duncan and Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder and wow. Robert Creeley and Joanne Kiger, they would, they, and you not only just got to hear them read, you got to sit down at a, uh, a kitchen table and have a beer with them and talk to them. I remember one time I drove uh, Robert Duncan and Richard Grossinger uh, and Bertoff to the Cleveland Museum and we, you know, Walk through, and I had just had an extensive course in uh, the Hudson River School, and so I actually got to be the docent for them, talking about the uh, the, the pictures from from that period in the collection, and it, you know it was an uh, invaluable experience. Yeah, and then the band wouldn't perform again for another year. Um, what was going on? Why 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 that hiatus? Or maybe not a hiatus, but that extended period. Well, uh, um, probably because. The, the local clubs were packed with mostly cover bands, but like Joe Walsh and the James Gang, you could see them every Thursday night for a buck, and if you knew the guy at the door, it was free. Uh, the Glass Harp, there were a bunch of groups that, that were very good, and we still hadn't figured out what was necessary yet. Mm, okay. It was still more of an art project than a... And, and the lineup really changes dramatically between the 73 and 74 concerts. And Bob was on stage at, at both of those and continued once replaced by Bob Mothersbaugh in, on guitar to fill in when Bob Mothersbaugh wasn't making club dates and things. So. And there's there's a – on YouTube, there is a um, um, an audio recording of the Second Creative Arts Festival, which, which actually I think holds up really pretty well. Uh, it was a little too slow, perhaps, but I was kind of uh, impressed with how good it sounded when it surfaced. 
All right. And, and forgive me because I'm going to jump way ahead <clears throat> here. Um, but much later on came the business of this intellectual property litigation. You were certainly vindicated in that. And, and as I understand it, that's all water under the bridge, old history. I only bring it up because I read that your experience with that kind of led you to consulting with trial lawyers, doing legal research and writing and, and even writing you know, commentary on cultural and political issues. Can you tell me a little about that? Well, yeah, when when uh, when when actually I got sued by DeVoe first, I did not really sue them, right. as it turns out. Um, in order to uh, lower the cost, I kind of served as a paralegal for the attorneys that were representing me. And one of the attorneys, uh, she was a presidential scholar at Princeton in the first co-ed class at Princeton, graduated summa cum laude, and then was the only law student in the history of Akron U Law School to have nothing but A's. And she kind of, she taught me how to do legal research and writing. And then she later became the dean at, at, at the Akron U Law School. And what I found was that, that a lot of trial lawyers aren't really that good at doing research and writing. Mm. And plus, I, I also had some multimedia skills. So we wound up doing trial support for, for either criminal defense or plaintiff for, in civil lawsuits. Oh, oh, interesting. That's just not something I would have expected. Um, and you also studied under famed uh, Black Mountain poet Ed Dorn, uh, among other renowned poets. Um, what was Dorn's take on the whole de-evolution worldview? He loved it. He could not have been more encouraging. And in fact, uh, Jerry and I have talked about this, that that the fact that Ed, Ed Dorn and his wife, uh, Jennifer Dorn, who was part of the swinging London scene. Yeah. Uh, her brother, John Dunbar, had the art gallery where Yoko had the show that John met her. Oh, wow. And yeah. she dated either, I think it was Gordon of Peter and Gordon. And so these people that had like these kind of international credentials, they were actually kind to us and encouraged us in what we were doing. And to have somebody with that kind of stature say you know give you a pat on the back was was really important i think for all of us yeah and, and then ed and jennifer dorn they're publishing rolling rock magazine they employ you as a middle east correspondent you're in damascus syria in 1980 were you covering the siege of aleppo like what on earth no this it was after the siege of aleppo but it was in 83 and 84 okay okay and and it was a, uh, a very bizarre thing. What I was doing was helping install color TV studios and then training them in how to do like storyboarding and how to actually create a production. And at, at least one of the people in our group had to be CIA in, <laughs> in order for the State Department to have allowed us to do this. Wow. And I don't know who it was. Oh, wow. But uh, so I was there for... 14 weeks in 83 and 13 weeks in 84. And it, it was uh, eye-opening uh, because the Syrian people, they everybody had an Uncle George in Detroit that had a restaurant. I, I, and and they, they loved Americans. Mm. There, were all, there were all these Russian advisors walking around, very humorless, uh, uh, kind of intimidating folk. And... Syrians really didn't like them, but anybody that would provide them with weapons, they would 
they would tolerate. So mm. yeah, it, it 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 opened my eyes about um, stereotypes about people. I, yeah. you know, I, I had expected people to be hostile to to Americans, and my, you know, they were wonderful to us. Bob, Jerry, and Mark really, you know, some of the earliest things that they published come were published by these uh, poetry journals, essentially. I mean, that's where they found their voice a bit. You know, there was there was Shelley's that then republished the first writings, the kind of manifestos that 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 Bob Lewis and Jerry had written for the staff in Los Angeles. And so there was an incredible amount of support from the poetry community. And Bob Bob was studying poetry, too, was very connected to that. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. Jade, and I'm curious about where your interest in Devo started. I mean, because you've you've Tell got this, yeah, yeah. I mean, you got this exhibition. You've written these books. If you weren't doing all this industrious work with it, it would be frightening. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Yes. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was I. I had missed the like Saturday Night Live moment. It was kind of many people of sort of my generation, a little older, you know, talk about the kind of Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment, which was in 1978 when the band makes their way onto the uh, stage of Saturday Night Live. But but I was a little too young for that. I was probably, you know, 10 years old, you 10, 11 years old. Late. Yeah. Couldn't stay up that late. So I saw it, you know, in repeat maybe a few years later. But but in, in 1979, I got interested in skateboarding, actually. My parents bought me a Logan Earth Ski skateboard and a subscription to Skateboarder magazine. And the first issue that they gave me was a December 1979 issue, and Diva was on the cover. All right, so cover D- feature. D- <laughs> Devo right. was actually really embraced by the skateboarding community. The pads that they would wear on stage when they'd be flailing about and diving into the audience. Mike Rector, who would make all the pads for the skateboard kids, made them for Devo. Um, and, you know, in their first 1980 uh, video of Freedom of Choice, the eight skateboarders that are in it are all now skateboarding Hall of Famers. As, oh, wow. As is the <laughs> band. amazing. As is the band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. And then cut to you in high school going to dances, wearing the signature. Um, energy dome. Yes, the energy dome. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. They, because the band, you know, remarkably, they were allowed with Warner Brothers and whatever to do Club Devo. And they would sell through mail order, you know, a lot of the stuff that they would wear on stage, the energy domes and that sort of thing. So I had bought one and wore it to high school dances and things. Yeah. Right. And um, I'm assuming the the 50th anniversary exhibition now at the Bob Rauschenberg Gallery is going to be the setting for tonight's event. Tell me just a little bit about the exhibition itself and what folks can expect to experience. Well, it's kind of 20 years in the making. I mean, I first brought Mark to Florida in 1999 to do an art project. And of course, we did the Postcards for Democracy show a few years back. And even prior to that, uh, we had Jerry Casale here to give another art speak lecture in 2016 or 2017. So so this is something that I've been, you know, trying to pull together for all of this time. It, it really is a full-on retrospective exhibition, prototypes, handwritten lyrics, costumes, projected video, gold records, you know, um, it, it, it's fairly comprehensive in terms of that 50-year history. And it, it was just a wonderful time and opportunity to be able to kind of do it with them also kind of reuniting to do this 
what what had been billed at one point as the farewell tour. They say it's not a farewell tour. They're playing tonight in Portland. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, are there assets in this exhibition that might come out of your personal collection? Well, there are a few things that I've picked up along the way, but yeah, there, there. We managed to really tap into, you know, some folks that have had very deep archives, including things that came from Bob, and from those in the circle of friends and former band members, and as those, you know, Bob Casali and others have passed, some of the things that have been pulled into the show. Mark's first guitar that. He gifted to, you know, uh, Sumazaro's daughter before leaving for California. Things like that are in the show. And it really, you know, Bob kind of got to spend some time in the show this morning. And Yeah, Jade, and, Jade walked me through the show today. And I mean, uh, there was stuff that, that I hadn't seen in literally 50 years. I mean, uh, yeah. the, the amount of detail and the depth of the... Uh, uh, of the documentary evidence uh, that he was able to assemble is re- pretty remarkable, I think. Well, I think Mark should give you that guitar since he used yours and it got stolen. Got stolen. <laughs> I'm, I, we were just talking about that earlier. I want that guitar back. All right. Well, if you're listening out there, we're looking. Uh, that is about uh, all the time we have for today's program. It always goes by so quickly. But I want to thank my guests. We've been speaking with musician, composer, poet, and founding member of the new wave band Devo, Bob Lewis, along with director of the Bob Rauschenberg Gallery at Florida Southwestern State College, Jade Dellinger, who co-wrote the definitive account of Devo's early history. Bob Lewis will be featured at a lecture, reading, and Q&A event tonight from 7 to 8.30 in conjunction with the exhibition now at the gallery titled Devo 5.0. The beginning was the end, a 50th anniversary tribute to the De-Evolution Band. And tonight's event is free and open to the public, and the exhibition runs through December 9th. For details, visit RauschenbergGallery.com. Bob Lewis and Jay Dellinger, thanks so much for the great conversation. Thank you for having us, John. Thanks, John. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.